Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump expecting another indictment, quote, any day now. And as his legal peril grows, so does his political power. The staggering new numbers and 40 million ways that his base may help keep him out of prison. Plus, Trump's newest co-defendant and Mar-a-Lago manager emerges from obscurity to the center of the storm, swarmed today by cameras at his first court appearance, but not his last. Could his indictment end up helping his boss delay that trial until after the election? And as President Biden reverses a Trump decision to move U.S. Space Command to Alabama, some politicians are blasting the politics is behind the no-go. We'll speak to one of them next. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, Trump is predicting that his next indictment is imminent. Any day now is the way he worded it in a new post on social media. And of course, as with other target letters and other indictments, he has been the one to tell us about them. Though his legal problems seem to be growing and mounting exponentially, his political fortunes are growing and growing as well. It's coming into a clear view today just how much he is dominating the nomination fight. A brand new poll shows that he has a 37-point lead over his next closest Republican rival. That is 37 points ahead of Governor Ron DeSantis in the New York Times Siena survey of likely Republican primary voters and more than 50 points ahead of the rest of the pack. So this, of course, is going on. Two impeachments, two criminal indictments, as we are seeing here, as this is continuing, weighing what Republican voters here are going to decide. I'm joined tonight by one of those Republican candidates in the race, former Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson. Governor, thank you so much for being here tonight. The Republican frontrunner says that he believes he's going to be indicted any day now. Why aren't these indictments hurting him with your party's voters? Well, they are. I think even though he has a grip right now on the campaign, on his candidacy, uh, it's a loosening grip. There's a growing resurgent effort against uh, the Trump GOP establishment. And that resurgent effort is growing. It's because he has misled his supporters. He told them that uh, we, I'm fighting for you, and yet he's really asking them to fight for him by paying his legal fees, in which he's used $60 million of campaign funds that he solicited from small donors across America to pay legal fees. And so these facts, as they come out, are going to slow his campaign down. The last place you see it will probably be uh, in the poll numbers. But you're seeing that resurgency grow, and I expect it to continue to do so. But what are you basing that off of, Governor? Because we're just we're not seeing that in the numbers at this point. You're not seeing it when you go to Iowa, New Hampshire, and you talk to voters. I mean, you hear some concerns, but overwhelmingly, based on, on these new numbers, he is still the dominant force in your party despite those indictments. Well, whenever you see campaign rallies, uh, there's an incredible turnout. He brings a real entertainment value to uh, his campaign. But whenever you look at winning in 2024, there's a recognition 
that will be problematic with Trump leading the ticket, not just in his campaign, but down the, down the way. The debate is very important. The de debate is going to bring out many of these facts. Uh, I am doubtful that Donald Trump will show up on the debate because uh, I expect to be there. Uh, I plan on being there. And uh, these are facts that will be brought out and that he will not be able to withstand that type of scrutiny. Yeah, you and I both don't think he is going to be there based on what we know right now. But when you look at this poll, it finds that only 19 percent of Republicans and your party uh, believe that uh, only 17 percent see the former president as having committed any serious federal crimes, despite the fact that he is facing uh, another potential indictment this week. I mean, what do you say to how do you what do you say to those voters? Well, what I say to them is that uh, we can't win uh, with Donald Trump leading the ticket. I tell them that these are very serious criminal charges and they're going to have to cast a vote uh, as to whether he's going to be our nominee or not while these charges are pending. Can you imagine the circumstances that we have somebody leading our ticket uh, that has been convicted of a felony or soon going to trial? This is unbelievable in American political history. I don't know that we've ever had these type, I know we haven't had these type of circumstances before. And so uh, I know that you see the poll numbers and I believe there is merit that there's going to be a quiet reduction in those poll numbers as more of the facts come out and as more of the candidates join in and there is more candidates joining my resurgency uh, and uh, I think that's going to start having an impact. So you think the polls are just wrong? No, no, no. No, I'm saying that the polls are reflecting uh, where we are today. But I'm saying as you go on, you're, he's going to lose support. Those poll numbers will go down. And you see it now in the donor base. You see it in the nervousness of, of Iowans and a recognition we need another alternative. But the last numbers that will move will be the poll numbers. So you might not see that dramatic change until later this fall. Okay. So you've well, got to be patient I on this. You've got two choices. 52% of the Republican voters that were surveyed here said that they aren't considering anyone not named Donald Trump. But I want to mention, you talked about his legal fees there. We have now learned that his political group spent more than $40 million on the legal costs in just the first half of, year, half of this year alone, defending Trump, his advisors, and others. I mean, is the Republican Party turning into a legal defense fund at this point? Well, he's merged his campaign uh, into his defense strategy. His campaign is all about uh, simply uh, trying to address the uh, criminal cases that are against him, both in terms of his fundraising, but also in terms of his rallies in shaping uh, public opinion. If he loses the public opinion, if he loses the fundraising base, uh, he has no defense strategy. And so it's all merged in together, and that should be an alarming uh, circumstance, in fact, for the GOP and candidates that are going to be having to run next year. Do you agree with Will Hurd, what he said Friday night, that uh, Trump is running for president to stay out of prison? No. Uh, I, th I think he's, he's using his run for president to run his campaign. That is the... Uh, ultimate uh, what he is doing now. Uh, and so becoming president is, is a hopeful thing, obviously, for him. But the point is they're merged together right now. 
and I phrase it in a different way. This is an alarming day for our party. Uh, the debate is important. I'm going to raise these issues. I need everybody's support to be there. ASA2024.com. A dollar helps me get on that debate stage. We'll raise these issues that are important to the American public. Governor, you said you believe his political strategy, his legal strategy is a political one. So so how do you not agree with that sentiment if that's if he's running this race in a way to benefit and to help insulate him from his legal issues? Well, he is. He is running this race in a way that funds his campaign, that keeps a public opinion uh, moving his direction is what he's attempting to do. That's why he's going to continue to have rallies. Uh, but you're, you're asking me the motive as to why he ran to begin with, which was last year. I can't judge that. So I respect Will. He can say what he wants to say on there. I'll phrase it in my way and that his, uh, Trump's candidacy is dangerous for the American public. We have to beat him at the ballot box. And uh, people ask me, well, what's your chance of winning? You either have to uh, uh, elect him and coronate him, or you get in there and fight. And I'm getting in there and fighting for the Republican Party that I believe in and the Republican in the country uh, that I want for our future and for our grandchildren's future. And it doesn't, it can't be led by Donald Trump. If, if you don't make the debate stage, will you stay in the 2024 race? I intend to make the debate stage. We've had 10,000 new donors uh, just in the last uh, couple of weeks. And so we have momentum there. I have a full expectation to be there. People expect me to be on that debate stage. And uh, I intend to be there. And I know that uh, the 40,000 donors will come through for us. I know you want to be there and you've said you intend to be there. But I think there's a real question about whether or not you will. Because when you look at this poll, I mean, they didn't poll just Trump. They polled all the Republicans. And you, Governor, don't hit 1% in any of the demographics when it comes to um, Hispanics, evangelical voters, women voters, those with a college degree, without a college degree. I mean, when you see those numbers, how do you, why do you think you'll be on that debate stage in just a month from now? Well, the Rasmussen poll, a very credible national poll, had me at 4%, tied with a number of other contenders there. And so uh, let's just look at a broad variety of polls there. But again, uh, I'm not as known as some others that are out there. I want people to hear my story of being a federal prosecutor, head of the DEA, uh, worked on border security issues in the Bush administration, Congress, a governor for eight years. Uh, I want them to hear that record of experience. And as we get out there, I expect those numbers to change. Governor Asa Hutchinson, we will see if they do, if Trump's numbers change as well with those pending uh, indictments. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Kaylin. Great to be with you. Thank you. And for more on this, I want to bring in Jamal Simmons, the former communications director for Vice President Kamala Harris, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin, the former Trump White House communications director. I mean, with Trump's support, Alyssa, and you're looking at these polls, I mean, essentially the broader picture of this entire New York Times poll is just how large his lead is from all of the other Republican candidates. I mean, if you're an Asa Hutchinson or even a Ron DeSantis, what's your reaction when you see that poll? Well, this this poll should send shockwaves through the Repub- any member of the Republican Party who wants to see the party take a different direction from Donald Trump. I mean, this this notion that Ron DeSantis was supposed to be the heir apparent, and I think he had a real shot at being that shortly after the midterms, but that's largely been squandered. And I have to place some degree of, we'll call it blame, on some of the top contenders in the field after Donald Trump, whether it's Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, who I have a ton of respect for. They have not aggressively taken on Donald Trump, a former president who's gotten 
near, you know, 100% name ID in this country. This notion that you're somehow going to just beat him by kind of defining yourself and maybe rolling out a great policy proposal, that doesn't work in Donald Trump's America. There has to be an effort to talk about why he is not a credible leader, why he's unfit for office, talk about his legal exposure. How many indictments do we need to have before they're going to do that? And I just feel like folks, as smart as they may be, are waiting for some kind of magic to happen. And there's no indication historically that it's going well, to. Well, Thomas Massey, who's a uh, Kentucky Republican who's endorsing DeSantis, joked maybe they needed to get him indicted that would help his poll numbers <laughs> in the Republican Party. But when you look at this, what we hear a lot of the time is it's too many candidates. And that's why Trump is above and all, because he splits the, the dissension. But when you looked at this poll, they, they eliminated everyone else, even if it's just a Trump and DeSantis head-to-head match. Up. Trump was still so far ahead of him. I mean, look at the number, 62% to 31%, even if it's just the two of them. Yeah, the actual numbers are even more impressive than the spread, right? Like 54 to 17. It's a pretty big deal. Um, Donald Trump clearly has the force when it comes to this uh, uh, Republican primary. Too bad it's on the dark side and not really on the light side. But it's clear that Donald Trump is the, the kind of the big, the big uh, character here. The question uh, that I think that uh, Governor Hutchison was getting at a second ago mm-hmm. is there are a few pivot points when it comes to campaigns. And um, the, the debates will be one of those pivot points. And remember, it takes a horse to beat a horse. And right now, nobody really knows anything about the rest of these candidates. So when, once they see them on stage, they see how they perform, I think then let's take a poll after that in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, the states that matter first, let's take a poll after that, and then we'll see where this race really stands. But is it policy that matters? I mean, what is it that is the takeaway from the debate? Because the New York Times found they essentially looked at all sides of an issue, whether people believe, if you believe that trans people should be able to identify with the gender they do, or you don't, whether you believe that changes should be made to Social Security and Medicare, or they shouldn't, whether you believe uh, in corporations that you know should promote left and woke ideology, as DeSantis puts it, or that Republicans should stay out of that. On every single side of the issue, Republican voters still sided with Trump over DeSantis, even on some of the issues that he says, you know, he's stronger than Trump on. Well, and even if I think policy matters to a certain degree, but I think that we live in such a 24-hour news cycle social media environment where personalities really drive things, and there's no bigger personality than Donald Trump. I agree with you. I don't think he's going to show up to the debate stage. Hell, if I was advising him and he's pulling this high ahead, I probably wouldn't tell him to. I'd expect him to have counter-programming that I think is going to juice him just as much with the people who are with him. I do think, however, though, with DeSantis sinking, there is an opportunity for someone to emerge as the number two. I think it's likely a Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, but it will require them to get aggressive and define why Donald Trump can't be the leader. Part of it is the electability issue. The He is who, who Joe Biden wants to run against. Joe Biden is chomping at the bit to run against Donald Trump because he thinks he can beat him again. If it's a Nikki Haley, if it's a Tim Scott, if it's a Will Hurd, that's a much more challenging thing for the incumbent president. And the argument Governor DeSantis makes is that he can essentially, he has two issues, that he can get things done and that he can beat Joe Biden is what he yeah. argues. But when the New York Times and Siena asked Republican likely voters that, uh, they believed that Trump would be able to beat DeSantis when it came to getting things done, 67 to 22 percent. And on the ability to beat Biden, they gave Trump 58 percent and DeSantis, 28 percent. I mean, those are the two arguments that he's been making out on the campaign trail. No, it's absolutely true. This, this poll is devastating for DeSantis in every possible way, including the people who say that they are favorably inclined toward him. He have a, his favorable number was 66 percent. Among those people, Donald Trump still beat him 49, 48. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough row for him to yeah. uh, get through. 
Well, and not even just those issues. It's also about Trump and his legal exposure. I mean, and there were Republicans, it was 22 percent, I believe, when they were looking at the Trump-DeSantis head-to-head matchup that said, you know, even if they believed that Trump committed serious federal crimes, that they would still pick him over DeSantis. I mean, you're a Republican. What does that say about where Republican voters are? I think it means that Donald Trump has done a masterful job of committing the, con- convincing the American public that this is a witch hunt. These are not true allegations. They're coming for him because he's defending you. All not true, but that is what he's done. And he's frankly been aided by a lot of Republicans in the party who, if he's the nominee, they're going to bear the brunt of that when he... I think we'll lose to Joe Biden. Caitlin, he's so strong, he gets indicted, and everyone else has campaign problems. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're, Governor Asa Hutchinson, he's, we'll see if, the, if he's right about that prediction there, Jamal Simmons. Yeah. Well, Farrah Griffin, thank you both for thank being you. here tonight. We got our first look today at the second person accused of conspiring with Trump to obstruct justice. What happened when the Mar-a-Lago property manager appeared in court today? His arraignment's coming up. Plus, a growing space command saga as President Biden has decided to keep the headquarters in Colorado, rejecting a Trump-era decision to move it to Alabama. Critics, including Democrats and Republicans in the state's delegation, are not happy. Donald Trump's legal battles stretch up and down the East Coast. In the D.C. election interference case, the former president says he believes that an indictment could happen any day now, Obviously, he has been the very person to announce many of the indictments and target letters that he has received. Meanwhile, in Miami, the former president's new co-defendant in the Mar-a-Lago documents case had his first appearance in court today. And in Georgia, Fulton County is now bracing for potential Trump charges there, not just for him, but also potentially for many of his Republican allies. As the district attorney says that her investigation, which has been going on for two and a half years now, is complete and, quote, we are ready to go. A lot to sort through tonight, obviously, on the legal front. So I am joined by a pair of former U.S. attorneys, David Kelly and Harry Lippman. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Harry, Trump says this indictment is coming any day now. Obviously, it's Trump. We don't know when the actual indictment will come. But he has forecasted these a lot in the past. If and when that comes down, what are you going to be looking for in the charges? I want to see what this 241, it was kind of the surprise statute, the civil rights statute. What's the theory there? Because they're not doing an insurrection charge, it looks like. So it may have to do with the actual conduct on January 6th. I really want to see what that's about. And is your expectation that it won't be a sealed indictment like there was with the documents case? We had to wait for them to unseal it. So it was kind of the Trump legal team out there talking about what the charges were and what it looked like. And then we saw the indictment for itself. That's right. It could be because the only real reason to do it, you would sometimes do it if you think the defendant's going to abscond, won't happen here. The reason to do it is to sort of get the security in line and have everything good to go. That'll be a judgment call that Jack Smith will make, maybe with the chief judge yeah. of uh, the. Yeah. And that's the 2020 election interference investigation. We also yeah. have the documents case, which, of course, we saw became a superseding indictment last week as a third co-defendant was added. He was in court today in Miami, Carlos de la Vera. Uh, his arraignment now is going to be scheduled for August 10th. He did not have a Florida-based attorney. We saw the same thing happen with Walt Nada. He delayed in getting a Florida-based attorney. Do you think this is uh, clearly a delay tactic from the Trump legal team? I don't think it is. I mean, look, I practice a lot in the Southern District of Florida, and they're very strict on the pro hack vichy meaning you have to have a, you know, somebody, a local counsel um, stand up for outside counsel. So I don't, I don't really credit it to be a real delay tactic. And I don't think it's going to really delay much of anything. And remember, Trump also needs to be 
arraigned once again on the superseding indictment. So my guess will be that they'll do it all in one package. Okay, so August 10th is what we're looking for there. Uh, The other thing we learned from that superseding indictment is about Trump employee four, which for those of us who have been covering this closely, it's useful to Veras. He is the IT employees in charge of essentially all of that. And he was the one that Carlos de la Vera allegedly went to and asked about deleting a server for the boss. Uh, Is it clear to you, given he has gotten a target letter, as we are told, Part of these new charges is based on what he told investigators. Do you believe he's cooperating with them? Yes, or he's just testifying as he's supposed to. But it's such a good point that you make and that people have largely missed. He gets the target letter, and now he does what people should be doing, what De Oliveira should have done. Now they should have done. He gets a new lawyer. The guy he had before, Stan Woodward, is like represents a dozen witnesses. Including Walt Nada. Right. And that, that new lawyer says, um, excuse me, you've got a, a way to... Uh, have no jeopardy, a way to have jeopardy. Why don't you actually tell the truth? He does. He goes forward. And he is he a cooperator? He's out of he out of trouble. That's what we know. He won't be charged. And he's someone who's just got up and told the truth like citizens are supposed to. And what do you read into how prosecutors are asking, we're told based on sources, asking about who's paying for their attorneys and who's paying for their legal fees. I mean, we know, obviously, Walt Nada's attorney, Stan Woodward, is being paid. So is John Irving, who was Car- who is Carlos's attorney. What do you make it's of that? It's a great question. I mean, look, it's an obstruction case. And part of the obstruction case is who's, you know, who the witnesses are and how what they're hearing from the witnesses. And part of that is who's representing these witnesses. Um, and is that the representation really part of an obstruction scheme. And I think with employee number four, I think what Harry just explained, the switching of the lawyers really speaks to that very issue, that when he had a lawyer who was um, paid for by the Trump uh, organization, um, he said one thing. When that lawyer was conflicted and he got a new lawyer, bingo, he suddenly is what appears to be uh, in my mind, undoubtedly, a cooperator. You believe undoubtedly he is cooperating. Wow. And we're not just watching this investigation. We also now are watching Georgia as well. I mean, we long believed that August would be the month where there was any movement in that case. And we heard from the Fulton County District Attorney on the investigation there, her view of it. This is what she said. It's accomplished. I mean, we've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. What do you make of that? You think charges are coming? Oh, yeah. And ready to go means ready to go. I actually think in saying September 1st, she was looking to go give a little birth to Jack Smith. She was. It's very unusual. They haven't communicated at all, we've learned, which is strange or at least unusual. And I think in saying September 1st, she was saying, you got a week or two you, from news reports. You might have thought I'm coming tomorrow. No, you're OK, but pull the trigger relatively quickly. Do you think it's strange that they haven't coordinated? I don't. I can see Jack Smith wanting to be able to say at the end of the day he wasn't influenced by anything exterior to his own investigative team. Um, but I think that the, you know, putting up the orange barriers in front of the Fulton County Courthouse pretty much sends the signal that he needs. But they're now practical issues. You're right, I think, that he might not have done it before, but they, they're now going to be tripping over each other different statements in grand jury if they don't coordinate. Well, and for the district attorney you saw there, Fonnie Willis, I mean, yep. they, there was an attempt to essentially disqualify her by the Trump team. They cited comments that she's made in the right. past. I mean, do they have any merit when, when they're talking about this, that she has played a political role in this as well? She's a politically appointed official. You know, her campaign actually did talk about Trump that way. I don't think it'll get anywhere, but there's, it's, it's not completely. This is one of the few things that have a little bit going for yeah. it. 
I, I, look, I, I agree. Um, I don't think, number one, the judge found it was, it was a slam dunk. No standing. So he didn't he couldn't really bring the suit. And when the case ultimately gets charged, she still doesn't really have a claim. I think his best claim may be some sort of selective prosecution. That's an incredibly difficult charge to to succeed on. So I think this is all a lot of uh, noise. We just ticked through a lot right there. D.C., Florida, Fulton County. Doing our best. Harry Lim and David Kelly, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Ahead, U.S. Space Command is staying where it is. Colorado, after President Biden says he will not be moving the headquarters to Alabama, as was ordered in the Trump administration. How some lawmakers are vowing to fight it and investigate the move next. Tonight, sources say President Biden will keep the headquarters of U.S. Space Command in Colorado, reversing a Trump-era plan to move it to Huntsville, Alabama, a decision that has left Republicans and Democrats in that state unhappy tonight. The nation's top military leaders chose Colorado Springs as the home of Space Command back in 2021. But President Trump, before he left office, made the announcement that they were going to be moving it to Alabama, a decision I should note that was backed by the secretary of the Air Force that Trump had picked at that time. There was later an evaluation into why this was picked. That evaluation did find that Huntsville was ranked first. Colorado Springs was fifth. This is a list of six contenders that they looked into as what was the best home for U.S. Space Command. Colorado officials said the decision was politically motivated at the time. There was a report that was done by the Government Accountability Office and the Inspector General at the Pentagon that found there were shortfalls in the decision-making process but still ultimately backed it. The Air Force Secretary, picked by that is in, in place now, Frank Kendall, continued to recommend having the headquarters move to Alabama in line with that initial recommendation. U.S. officials now say that Biden's decision is based on the advice of the head of Space Command, that's General James Dickinson, who argued that if they moved it now, it would jeopardize military readiness, given the time it would take to move. GOP Senator in Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, is now saying this is a disastrous and policy-based, politically-based decision that he says, of course, this comes as he is single-handedly holding up the nominations of more than 300 military officers over the Pentagon's abortion policy. That is the context and the background here. Joining me now to talk about this is Republican Congressman Robert Adderholt of Alabama. Congressman, thank you for for joining us. I mean, we are told that the Pentagon informed the congressional delegation in Alabama of this decision before it was announced publicly. Were you one of those? And what did you say to those officials? Well, the uh, last decision or the last conversation that we had with the folks at the Pentagon and with General Dickinson was that uh, there was no reason that it, that it had to be in Colorado. So this came as a complete surprise to us today. Uh, we had no uh, knowledge of it before this afternoon. We got word uh, actually from a reporter. So uh, now we were completely shocked because, of course, obviously, I, we knew that Colorado was wanting to get Space Command, but they ranked number five, as you mentioned in your opening remarks. And uh, Huntsville, North Alabama, was number one. And so, therefore, it only made sense that if, you, if you're not using politics to, to make the decision, then it would come to Alabama. And do you believe this is a political decision that is being made by the, by the administration? Well, I'm concerned that it is after, because you, you mentioned about the uh, inspector general. The Biden had his inspector general also come in and take a, another assessment. And still, Huntsville came out on top, uh, heads and shoulders above all the rest. So it has been vetted many times. This decision was made quite some time ago. It happened to be President Trump was the president, but it was based on the decision 
that Huntsville and North Alabama was the best place. No political decision or political influence was put into that, to my knowledge. And well, it was solely based on the what what the uh, dynamics of the situation was. But on that front, you know, this decision has kind of sparked this debate, I know, among lawmakers over, you know, who should make the decision here? Because as we noted, the Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall, uh, had the was leaning toward Alabama, and the question was, should the Air Force Secretary be the one making this final decision? Do you believe it's up to the president, or is it up to the Secretary of the Air Force here? I think ultimately it should be up to the Secretary of the Air Force because it should not uh, should not be a political decision, and that was why Alabama was ranked number one, and that's why uh, it was, for all indication it was going to Alabama. So uh, you know, it's just completely shocking and outrageous that. All of a sudden here at the 11th hour, they've decided to put it in Colorado when, if you look on this, they rank five. I mean, nothing against Colorado, but it was just not the place that, where they thought it was best. They looked at the best place to uh, for uh, uh, cost of living. They, they Multiple factors were put into the mix. Yeah. Politics was not made in, was not one of those, and, it, and Huntsville, North Alabama came on top. Well, and I should note Trump's, Secretary of the Air Force also, Barbara Bear, also said that she believed it should be moved to Alabama, but he later claimed single-handedly that he was the one who made this decision. That's what raised questions of whether or not he was making a political decision. But what we're hearing from officials, the pushback to what you're saying today, is that they say the headquarters in Alabama, the new ones, would not be completed until sometime after 2030, and that would affect military readiness. Do you see any merit in that argument? No, because we had a conversation, and when I say we, the Alabama delegation, all of us met with the uh, General Dickinson, who is who is over Space Command, mm-hmm. and that was never once mentioned. And this was it, probably uh, probably within the last two months we had this conversation, and there was no indication there was a problem with Huntsville at that time. And uh, if things have changed, I don't know where it's coming from. Well, as you know, other than maybe it's coming from politics from the president. Well, as you know, our home state, Alabama, bans abortion at any stage of pregnancy, no exceptions for race, race, rape and incest. The only exemption is if it's needed because the pregnancy threatens the health of the mother. You know, we had previously heard from U.S. officials that they had concerns about those policies in Alabama and what it would mean for service members there if Space Command was moved to Huntsville. I mean, do you believe that the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the state's abortion policy played a role in this decision? Well, I hope not, because if it did, then we know that it's clearly politics, because I, I hope that we're not deciding where our military bases in this country is going to be located is based on the political landscape of the particular state. So uh, obviously, uh, Alabama did, like many other states, pass some uh, abortion laws as as under the uh, Dobbs decision they could. But I, I don't want to I don't want us to go down a road of where we're making military decisions based on politics. And that's what this looks like. And that's why we're very concerned. And as the Alabama delegation, we're going to do everything we can to try to, uh, you know, find out where the problem is. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be meeting together probably very soon and discussing how we can move forward with this. And Congressman, if you don't think that politics should play a role in military decisions, does that mean you disagree with what Senator Tuberville is doing right now by holding up military nominations because he doesn't like the Pentagon's abortion policy? Well, you've got to remember, it never was the policy of the Pentagon that you paid. The abortion was always was never on the table. And so the Biden administration brought politics into the mix. 
And that's why Tuberville, Tuberville has been uh, responding the way he has. Uh, he is pushing back with the administration and saying, you know, let's not play politics with this. And so they were the ones that started it. If he, if he had never put uh, the policy in where they pay for abor- travel on abortions, then this issue would never come up. But they're not paying for abortions. They're paying for service members to be able travel. to travel to travel. So they're not directly paying for abortions. They say they're doing that because if a service member, you know, they don't get to decide where they're stationed. If they're stationed in Alabama, they have no choice but to have to travel to, to make that decision. Well, the bottom line is the taxpayer dollars are going toward abortion. And, you know, uh, Caitlin, you know, there's a lot of people in this country, including myself, that just doesn't feel comfortable that taxpayer dollars are going toward uh, any way directly or indirectly toward abortion. But and that's what this is all about. If the concern is about military readiness, I mean, don't you agree that his hold on these nominations for, for someone who is going to be on the Joint Chiefs of Staff is affecting military readiness? I think that uh, that these people, uh, obviously you want to try to do everything you can. You don't, to, you don't want to impede the military. But at the same time, there is a, a lot of people I think the military is doing fine, and I don't think that these holes on the military are going to cause any great concern to the readiness of our military. I just think some people listening may have a tough time connecting those two and understanding the concerns that you and members of the Alabama delegation have that the administration is playing politics by deciding where the head of Space Command should be and the idea that an Alabama senator is single-handedly blocking all of these military promotions, which former defense secretaries say is going to affect military readiness. Well, uh, no. It, well, again, we, it goes back. This was never an issue until the Biden administration put this policy to effect, in effect to the be- in the beginning, that, that abortion would be but part of it. that's because the Supreme and Court so, overturned Roe versus Wade. Since, exactly. But since that, but, you know, let me just say that, you know, what we're talking about is taxpayer dollars. And there's not that anyone is forbidden from getting abortion, but it's just the taxpayers' dollars going toward indirectly, but still. And there's so many Americans that don't want to see, do, does not want to see their taxpayer dollars go toward abortion. Congressman Robert Adderholt, thank you for joining us on this decision from uh, about Space Command and where it's going. If you hear anything from the administration, please let us know. Thanks, Caitlin. It's good to be on with you. Thank you. Ahead, an update on the search for the American nurse who was kidnapped in Haiti along with her child. What we're learning. Tonight, U.S. officials are closely monitoring the kidnapping of an American nurse and her child in Haiti. But they have not said whether or not they have any leads. This is Alex Dorsonville. She was in the country with a Christian or humanitarian organization that her husband founded In a video for the aid group, she described what working in Haiti meant to her. Haitians are such a resilient people. They're full of joy and life and love. And I'm so blessed to be able to know so many amazing Haitians. The organization now says that Alex and her child were taken near Port-au-Prince Thursday morning. That's the same day that the State Department put out a new warning telling all non-emergency personnel to leave Haiti, given the situation unfolding on the ground. Joining me now is the executive director of UNICEF, Catherine Russell. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I know that you were just in Haiti. You just Mm -hmm. left there last month. What is the situation like on the ground? 
The situation on the ground is really quite desperate. There's so much violence everywhere. There are armed gangs that are sort of patrolling Port-au-Prince and terrorizing everyone who lives there, honestly. And now we're seeing vigilantes forming in response to the gangs. And so the result is that the poor people who live there are just being completely terrorized by gangs on both sides uh, and living in complete and utter terror. Well, and Haiti has always struggled, of course, and then the humanitarian issues on top of it. The president was assassinated recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, the confluence of issues on the ground and how that's affecting, you're seeing it up close, how it's affecting these children, these people who are living there and growing up and, and trying to live their normal lives. Exactly. Well, UNICEF does humanitarian work, and, and primarily that's what we're there to do, is to try to help five million people who need humanitarian assistance. And that's incredibly challenging when, you know, as you say, Haiti has had many struggles over the years. Some of them are things like earthquakes that they have no control over. Some is bad governance. Some is just, you know, really difficult uh, sort of violence that has been a persistent problem. But the the confluence of all of these things has made it really challenging for the population that lives there. And and I I mean... What's the solution for that? I think people look yeah. at this and they're horrified. I mean, obviously, Alex, the Haitians meant so much to her. She talked about yeah. just the resiliency of the people given the earthquakes and the issues that they have had to deal with. Yeah, I was struck by what she said because I visited a school when I was there. I, I actually was there with Cindy McCain, who's the executive director of mm-hmm. World Food Program. And we saw a school where these kids are so excited to be there. They come, they're in their uniforms. You know, the girls, you saw it in the video, they all have their hair in these uh, beautiful bows and ribbons. And I thought, you know, they, it means so much to them to be able to go to school and to their parents to get an education. And that's what we want is some future for the country. But right now, you can't even get to that because the violence is so pervasive. So I think the first thing is that somehow we need to quell the violence. And that's not going to be easy because Haiti doesn't really have the capacity itself to do that. It doesn't have a military. It has a police force that's really decimated. Um, so they, they are unable to do this. And so yeah. that's why President Henri, as you mentioned, has asked for international help. The Secretary General, the Secretary of State have all said there needs to be some force that goes in there to try to, to, try to stop some of the violence. Catherine Russell, obviously we're thinking of Alex and her family and hoping uh, for a safe recovery. Thank you for joining us. With your perspective, given you were just there last month. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Back home, some Republicans are sparring with their de- with Democrat counterparts over testimony from a former business partner of Hunter Biden's. What he told lawmakers during a closed door deposition. Next. On Capitol Hill today, Hunter Biden's former business partner testified behind closed doors. Devin Archer saying that Hunter Biden put his father on speakerphone numerous times during business meetings that they had over a period of time. That's according to a source familiar with his testimony. But Archer also stressed that while Hunter Biden did call his father, who was vice president at the time, he said it was an effort to sell what he called the illusion of access to then Vice President Biden. CNN sources also reiterating that Archer did not provide any evidence connecting President Biden to his son's business dealings, as Republicans have alleged. That has not changed. And Archer's appearance comes as he is set to serve a year-long prison sentence in an unrelated fraud case, but something that still played a factor in this testimony. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me now. I mean, that was the most notable thing, was him saying that Hunter Biden would call then-Vice President Biden and put him on speakerphone 
But uh, I don't think it's any surprise something happens behind closed doors. We got wildly different versions of it from from Democrats and from Republicans. Yeah, we definitely have. I mean, so Devin Archer was a business partner of Hunter Biden's for about a decade. And he said that Hunter Biden would call his father every single day. But he recalled about 20 times that Hunter Biden had called his father, put him on speakerphone when they were in meetings with business associates. One phone call took place when they were in Paris at a dinner. You know, he also talked about how, according to sources, how the former president or excuse me, I guess he was the then vice president president had popped into a dinner, uh, you know, and he had done this numerous times. But what Archer did say under oath, uh, according to our sources, is that they never discussed business. These were more of just cordial hello types of conversations. But, you know, the Republicans are saying they're going to seize on this. uh, The House Oversight Committee chairman, James Comer, is saying that, no, 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 this is evidence that Joe Biden did know something about these foreign business dealings. And so in a statement after the hearing, he said, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, he joined Hunter Biden's dinners with his foreign business associates in person or by speakerphone over 20 times. Why did Joe Biden lie to the American people about his family's business dealings and his involvement? As you say, the Democrats are choosing to look at this differently. And the House member, Dan Goldman, who was in, in the room when this testimony was taking place, he came out after and said that this is all a waste of time. Here's more of what he said. The, the witness was very, very consistent that none of those conversations ever had to do with any business dealings or transactions. They were purely what he called casual conversations. Archer's attorney is saying that, of course, both sides are looking to claim victory here. But he said all that Devin Archer did was answer all of their questions, honestly and truthfully. Notable development there. <laughs> Karis Canal, thank you for tracking all of that for us. Also ahead, there has been a new subpoena just issued in a Trump-related investigation. Who is it? We'll tell you next. new update just in tonight. A journalist in Atlanta says that he has gotten subpoenas, two of them, to appear before a Fulton County grand jury sometime in the month of August. His name is George Chidi. He was at the state capitol on December 14th, 2020. The reason that day is critical is because that is the day that the electors were meeting to certify the election for President Joe Biden. He discovered a meeting of Republicans downstairs who were planning to serve as fake electors. This is the latest indication that the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, could plan to seek indictments in her criminal probe into Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We also know that meeting is something that has come and been of interest to the special counsel, Jack Smith. I should note this was first reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. CNN has confirmed it. And as you heard earlier, the district attorney in the state said that she and her fellow prosecutors, two and a half years into their investigation in the state of Georgia, are, quote, ready to go. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.